We are now about to hear the first in our fascinating series of recordings of the Easter Rebels. Today you will hear the lost and recovered voice of Podrick Pierce, to be followed by a live studio discussion of what we have heard. This panel will be asked to react to the voice and the ideas just broadcast and to respond to queries from the public on related teams. You can contact the station on 87 At this time, there are many treatments of the team of the 1916 Rising, but none as dramatic as this series. We hope that you enjoy and benefit from our broadcast of Lost Easter Voices. Hello, I'm Charlotte Tannen. I'm a member of the NEAR production team. We give you the first in our series called The Lost Easter Voices. We are now about to broadcast what could be a unique media event. The recording you are about to hear is alleged to be the last interview with Porrick Pierce in his prison cell just before his execution. This is from a collection of ancient Edison cylinders recorded during the week of the executions. They were brought back to Ireland by Signora Juliet Maxwell Hogan and the Signora is joining us on the panel to discuss these recordings and tell you how they became to be preserved for over a hundred years. You're very welcome, Signora. Gracias, I'm happy to be here. And now I'd like to introduce my other guests. We have historian Professor Wilmot Hines, retired lecturer in modern Anglo-Irish history at King's College London. Professor Hines' main research are in the social, political and cultural history of the early 20th century, United Kingdom, with particular focus on Ireland, circa 1900 to 1920. You're very welcome, Professor. Please, call me Wilmot, I'm retired. Great, Wilmot. And beside you, we have Roger Brazenby. Hello. Hello. And Roger is a popular Irish blogger with a year-long running debate on 1916 asking the question, should we celebrate or commemorate 1916? You're very welcome, Roger. Thank you. And finally, we have in studio Mr Hugh Coy, who describes himself as Liverpool Irish. He is the author of Being Irish with a question mark, which is, I understand, an attempt to understand his roots. You're very welcome, Hugh. Thank you. I note from the book that you say that your family dropped the Mac to fit in. So you could have been the real McCoy? That's right. (laughs) (laughs) My grandparents removed the Mac to hide the fact that they were Irish at a time when there was hostility to immigrant Irish in Britain. (laughs) My book is an attempt to discover what it is to be Irish and ask, is it worthwhile bothering? Okay, so that's our panel. They will be with us for this series of amazing interviews we are about to hear as we explore the many issues raised and perhaps even answer some questions about 1916. The first recording here, speaking to social historian Richard Maxwell, just before his execution, is the voice of Porrick Pierce. Right, Mr Pierce, uh, pull your chair a little closer to the device. Uh, Just speak into the phonograph, please. How does this uh, phonograph work? It's what's called an Edison phonograph. I can record sound with it. It's an incredible technical breakthrough, sir. Lord, I was so busy with matters political that I overlooked the marvels of science. How does it work? This device consists of capturing waveforms that are engraved on this rotating cylinder here, see? Uh, Later, as the recorded surface rotates, a playback stylus traces the waveforms and vibrates to reproduce the recorded sound waves. How can this be? Here, I'll I'll play a short piece for you. Uh, Mr. Percy French singing. That's why I was here in Dublin to interview him. (laughs) I'll just take the blank cylinder off first. 
That was Percy French singing in the Tivoli on the keys, uh, while you were reading your proclamation quite close to us. Uh, now, I've replaced the cylinder for your interview. That was beautiful, to have Percy French serenade me, here in my execution cell. Is everything all right, Mr Maxwell, sir? Only the prisoner's not allowed to be singing before he's shot. It wasn't him, jailer. Now, be a good man and leave us alone, eh? Yes, sir. <laughs> As if you'd be singing at a time like this, Mr Pierce. Now, it is early morning of the 3rd of May, and I'm in the cell of Mr Patrick Pierce, President of the Declared Irish Republic. The room is empty except for a sack on the floor for a bed with a bucket in the corner. You can begin now if you're ready, sir. I don't want to intrude. I saw you praying as I came in. My affairs are now in order. I have time to kill. Shall I sit on the chair you brought in? Yes, please. Uh, sit close to the device and speak into it. I heard the warder refer to you as Maxwell. Is it a coincidence that the General and Commander-in-Chief of British Forces in Ireland is Sir John Maxwell? Uh, he's my uncle. That's how I got permission to speak to you and the other prisoners. I assure you, I hold no brief for the British behaviour in Ireland. I'm a social historian. I believe that your voice and motivation should be recorded for posterity. Poor Tone and Emmett did not have this opportunity. Let us on then, for my hour of departure approaches. I hope, sir, that you can be candid, as I believe that such a record will be invaluable to future generations. Please don't let my link to General Maxwell deter you from speaking. There is nothing more Maxwell can do to me. I've been found guilty in his court and condemned to death. I know, and I'm truly sorry. Tis not your fault. We knew what we were bringing on ourselves. Thank you. Were you born in Dublin? Yes. I was born in Dublin in the year 1879. My father was an English sculptor and my mother a county maid woman. I had a happy, comfortable upbringing. Education? I won a scholarship to Royal University, where I studied law and afterwards called to the Irish Bar. Did you practice? Only once, to defend a cart owner charged with displaying his name in Irish. You sound, sir, an unlikely rebel. How did you become involved? I was always a very serious child. On leaving school, I joined the Gaelic League and became immersed in Irish cultural activities. I developed a strong desire to promote the Irish language as the repository of Irish culture. That is still a pursuit permitted by the authorities. Why didn't you continue with the Irish language activity? Because my consciousness was evolving. I was initially a cultural nationalist. I had spent many years in contemplation of the most grotesque of the English inventions of the basement of Ireland. I mean their education system. Surely an education system is a good thing. There is no education system in Ireland. The English have established an education meant to repress. The English are too wise to educate the Irish. Might as well arm us. I'm shocked by your remarks. Please excuse me, but all such sentiment is new to me. Considering my remarks, you might understand why I established an Irish-speaking school for the boys in Hermitage in Matfarnham, long associated with Robert Emmett. I often felt his presence there. You established a school. How oh, very nice. Yes. In St. Enders, I created a child's republic. Celtic myth and revolutionary politics were an essential part of the curriculum. I am pleased to remark that many of the pupils and four of the teachers joined me in the rising. I hope they are safe. Why did you, a school headmaster, take such drastic action? We had to act. There has been nothing more shameful in Irish history than the failure of the last generation. No man had arisen from it to say or do a splendid thing. A splendid thing? The last generation failed shamefully. We may have failed, but we failed nobly, and that 
is a splendid thing. I see. And this thing might be self-sacrifice? Ireland is owed all fidelity and sometimes asks its people for a supreme service. What do you think you have achieved? Ireland's pulse was faint. Now it is quickening. And soon it will be beating healthily. I hear talk in Dublin, Mr Pierce, of home rule for Ireland. Would that not have been enough? There was a time when I supported such, but only as a stepping stone. As far back as 1912, I issued a warning that if we are cheated now, there will be red war in Ireland. Mr Redmond, I heard, uh, has made real progress on this matter. Without any authority. Ireland's historic claim is for separation. Ireland has authorised no man to abate that claim. Parnell asserted, No man has a right to say to his country, Thus far shalt thou go and no further. So, not the parliamentary way. A military rising was always a possibility for you. Tone calls to us from his grave. He stated clearly a view of Ireland as a free nation. A view not needing now ever to be stated anew for any new generation. Was this Tone important? An empire, sir, has no need of such people as Tone. We need him, a thinker and doer, dreamer of the immortal dream and doer of the immortal deed. We owe it to this dead man to follow his thoughts, his deeds. I hope we have been worthy. But you and your followers have been crushed. You yourself will die in a few minutes. Was it worth it? A resounding yes. Our ideal and our methods will prevail. Lesser ideals have proved unattainable and wiser methods more foolish. So, when did you move from cultural nationalism to this physical force position? This is an important question. The deprivation I observed among Dublin citizens during the Dublin lockout of 1913 convinced me that the root of the matter lay in foreign domination. The delay over the passing of the Home Rule Bill further eroded my fate in constitutional methods. That was the point when I realised that there are many things more horrible than bloodshed and slavery is one of them. What actions did you take in moving to physical force? What of your school? I joined the Irish Volunteers at their foundation in 1913. As for my school, I realised that true educational freedom was conditional on the attainment of full political independence. I can understand the desire for political independence, but Mr Pierce, a handful of Irish Volunteers against the British Empire, which controls half the world, what could you possibly hope to achieve? One man can free a people as one man redeemed the world. It is my belief that through my martyrdom in an insurrection, dormant militant nationalism would be revived and Ireland's right to freedom be proven. But Let me finish the point. Bloodshed is a cleansing and sanctifying thing. The old heart of the earth needs to be worn by the red wine of the battlefield. You believe this? That, sir, is the strange thing that I am. How did you become leader of this rising? Pragmatism, I surmise. Tom Clark was the heart and soul of the movement, but declined to become president. While James Connolly was the military brains, he also declined the title of Commander-in-Chief of the Irish Forces. I accepted both, as it was considered that my rhetoric might be required at certain times. Could you not have planned it better, waited till you had a larger force? We had a larger force and plans for a national uprising. What happened? We kept our plans from Owen McNeil, our Chief of Staff, who was opposed to such a rising. I found him generally hopelessly indecisive. <laughs> However, he became decisive when he learned of the planned rising. As Chief, 
he cancelled all manoeuvres planned for Easter Sunday, which was to turn into the seizure of key public buildings. That should have been the end of plans for the Rising. Not at all. I had already met McNeil, and I had told him that he could issue what orders he liked, our men would not obey him. However, he did manage to cause confusion in the ranks, and very few mobilised as planned. You went ahead anyway? Yes. I and the other members of the Military Council met in Liberty Hall on Sunday morning and reworked the plans for Easter Monday. I see. As we wished to be recognised as a legitimate army, I marched as President at the head of our force to the GPO. I wore a full volunteer uniform and I carried a sabre. A sword? Yes, a sword. Your own military commanders carry such swords. It is very common, militarily. Why would you want to emulate British military fashion? You look at it all too literally. Is there any other way to see a sword? Many ways. We could consider the magical sword of Cambodia, which was imbued with the blood of a slave who died a voluntary death to expiate his slavery. The sword contains a yan, or spirit of the slave, whose blood chanced to fall upon the blade while it was being forged. Can't you feel the force of such metaphor? I do, now that you describe it. Your sword has such powers? Such metaphoric powers. Anyway, to my account of the establishment of our republic, when we occupied the building, Tom Clark handed me the proclamation, and with an armed bodyguard, I marched out onto the steps and read our glorious proclamation to a bemused crowd of onlookers. I knew it was too early for them to comprehend what they were witnessing, but eventually, what we were doing would revivify the spirit of the Irish nation. What were you feeling right then? Exultant. Ireland was rising in arms and my life would be given in the service of my people. A slave, dying voluntarily. You are getting a feel for such tropes. In spite of this, Jan, uh, your rising lasted only a week. Remember how a slave redresses his slavery. I see. Our fighters were glorious. Three days into the conflict, I reminded everybody that already we had performed better than Emmett in 1803. I also remarked that even though a great deal of Dublin city centre was being destroyed, we had redeemed the fair name of our city, which was dishonoured when Emmett was allowed to die before a large crowd of its people. Did such remarks help? Oh yes. Towards the end of the week, when we all knew it was hopeless, I was able to assure my followers that we would find victory even though that victory might be found in our bloody death. This reassured them. They cheered to the flaming rafters. It's hard to understand how such rhetoric could motivate people. I mixed it with hopeful military news. I told them that a large force of volunteers was marching on Dublin to relieve them. This raised such a cheer as to drown out the falling shells. But there was no marching volunteers. McNeil's countermand had fatally weakened your actions. We could have achieved much more enthroning the Irish Republic as a sovereign state had our own arrangements been allowed to go through on Sunday morning. However, both McNeil and we have acted in the best interests of Ireland as we saw it. That is magnanimous of you, Mr Pierce. We are almost at the end of the cylinder. Have you any final words? For my part, as to anything I have done, I am not afraid to face either the judgment of God or posterity. We seem to have lost. We have not lost. To refuse the fight is to lose. To fight is to win. I don't understand. Ireland's identity was almost gone. To rise up against such obliteration is to win a self-awareness. Not necessary to win militarily. Exactly. So all is going to plan. Don't tell your uncle. To your trial, Mr Pierce. 
Do you feel you got a fair trial? I'm afraid it was a drumhead court devised at a time of war for the British to rid themselves of us. They accused me of acting to assist the enemy. Tom Clark advised us all that this gave us an opportunity to plead not guilty as our purpose was not to assist England's enemy but to free Ireland from England's clutches. Did you offer a defence? No, it was all too predictable. A verdict was read to you? No, not immediately. Earlier this night, as expected, guilty. Death by firing squad. Did they let you say anything during the trial? Yes. I explained that as a child I went down on my knees and told God that I would work all my life to gain the freedom of my country. I admitted that I had organised men to fight against Britain and I hoped that the British government who had shown its strength would now also be magnanimous and spare the lives of my followers. I am the last person with you. Even the priest is gone. Have you any final words? Finally, I must pay tribute to James Connolly. He came to the IRB late but in the heat of battle he proved himself invaluable. While I was nominal commander-in-chief, it was his military skills that kept us in occupation for the week. A young volunteer called Michael Collins confided in me that he'd follow Connolly into hell. Yes, go on. I should also praise the gallantry of the volunteers. Their actions were the most glorious in the later history of Ireland. We did not win this battle, but we deserve to win. They have redeemed Dublin, saved Ireland's honour. My sole object in surrendering unconditionally was to save the lives of our followers. We are almost finished. Are you at peace? I am. Father Aloysius has been with me. I've written a few short poems to my loved ones, my mother and my brother Willie. I hope when they read them, they will comfort them. I'm sure they will. Do you know why I'm particularly at peace? Why? Father Aloysius told me that Connolly has made his confession and taken Holy Communion. I'm happy, as I was worried about Connolly's soul. I'm sure his soul is at peace. And can I offer a hope that your beautiful city finds peace now? It is because peace is so precious a boon that war is so sacred a duty. Ireland will not find Christ's peace until she has taken Christ's sword. We must not flinch when we are passing through that uproar. We must not faint at the sight of blood. I see, sir, that you are unbowed. This is the death I would have chosen if God had given me a choice of all deaths. To die as a soldier for Ireland's freedom. And I hear that Tom Clark and Tom McDonagh are to be shot with me in the early morning. I hope it is only the signatories to the proclamation that must die. We expected such. But I hope all others, including Willie, will be spared. Have you any news on my brother? No. I will only be given the names and access to the men who are about to be executed. I'll have to leave you alone now, Mr. Pierce. Uh, Patrick. I am not alone. Here be ghosts we have raised this Easter time. And ghosts are troublesome things. There is only one way to appease a ghost. You must do the thing it asks you. The ghosts of a nation sometimes ask very big things. And they must be appeased, whatever the cost. Fret not for me. I am surrounded this night by O'Neill, by O'Donnell, Sarsfield, Tone, by Emmett, by O'Donovan Rossa, by Parnell, Davis, Lawler and Mitchell. All the genuine separatists.
Methinks your uncle General Maxwell and I have raised some ghosts that will take some laying. Let no man ride by. What did you make of that? What an incredible occasion, if this really is the voice and last words of Porrick Pierce. Tell me, Wilmot, you're a historian. Can you verify it? What? The voice? I've never heard the voice of Pierce. I'm not aware of any recordings of his voice. Well, until now, that is. Uh, well, yes. If this is an authentic recording, then it is an extraordinary occasion. To capture the final words of such an iconic figure. Mm. Let's hear the story behind this recording. Signora Maxwell Hogan, you are the owner of these recordings. Um, You're very welcome to Ireland and indeed to Near FM. Can you tell our listeners how you came into possession of such important recordings? See, SOS. I am the great granddaughter of this British social historian called Richard Maxwell. As he has admitted to Mr. Pierce, uh, the commander of British forces in Ireland at the time was his uncle. That was how Richard Maxwell obtained permission to visit the condemned men. He was the last, I understand, to visit for the clergy, and he recorded each man just before the execution. It's remarkable. Mm -hmm. Uh, But uh, I'd like to hear more before making up my mind. Although the remarks made by the purported Pierce are true to his speeches and writings. Very interesting. Can you tell us a bit more, Signora, about how you came to possess uh, these important recordings after 100 years? Well, it was just by chance. Uh, You see, my great-grandfather Richard Maxwell was in Dublin to record the interview with uh, Percy French. Uh, He was using an Edison phonograph to capture French impressions of Dublin through his sketches and songs. They were at the Tivoli Theatre on Borky when the rising started close by, cutting short the social history of Irish Music Hall and opening an opportunity to capture the voices and motivations of the arrested Irish rebels. At a time when little no recording or no recording of any kind were taking place. Luckily, he used lead coating of the cylinders, and this was more robust than the more common wax, so the recording survived. And then this is where we came in. We offered to digitise and preserve these recordings for posterity, and to broadcast them and assemble the panel to explore these lost Easter voices, so that our listeners would have a clearer understanding of the writing. Yes, that's a good idea, because people, even this week, are still a bit confused by how and why the rising took place. I mean... What were they actually trying to achieve? It can't have been just to get themselves shot. So what was it? Indeed, Roger. Well, let's listen to Lost Easter Voices and find out. With all due respects uh, to Nier, Signora, 
Why didn't you go to RTE or one of the big commercial stations? Because uh, I don't really know those stations. I only knew this station near FM. That doesn't make sense. Well, uh, let me explain. Uh, my husband, Sean Hogan, have left Ireland in his teens. And we visited Ireland in 2013 uh, as part of the Hogan Gathering. And by chance, I heard Percy French being played on a radio station. Actually, this station. Mm. Entonces, I, uh, I talked to the presenter, uh, Señor... Mm, Probably Bobby O'Toole, who plays older songs every week. Bobby O'Toole, would that be him? Sí, sí, yeah. sí. Uh, yes, yeah, I was becoming familiar with Percy French because of my great-grandfather's diary. I was amazed to hear a station still playing such music. I phoned and uh, talked to Senor Bobby. Mm-hmm. He invited me on the following week and we played some Percy French oh. songs. And then for that reason, I felt near will be the place, the ideal place to, to deal with this material. Bobby put me in touch then with the near teen and I allowed them to make copies of the originals. Oh, and uh, Percy French was very popular at the time of the rising. Uh, he wrote humorous ballads and songs all with a distinctly Irish flavour. <laughs> Perhaps I could relate for you a humorous story about oh, Percy French. Please do, Wilma, that'll be very good. Uh, well, yeah. one of French's most famous songs, Are You Right There, Michael, is a song ridiculing the state of the rail system in County Clare, where, according to the song, the journey could take all day. The song caused such embarrassment to the rail company that it sued French. At the hearing, French arrived late at the court, and when questioned by the judge on his lateness, he responded, Your Honour, I travelled by the West Clare Railway. (laughs) (laughs) And the case was thrown out. (laughs) Very good, very clever. (laughs) How many of the executed leaders did your relative record? Uh, seven is all I have. The diary said he recorded all 15 executed men, but uh, he separated the recordings into two suitcases, and one seems to be missing. So, um, who have we got? Well, the recordings are of the seven proclamation signatories. Fascinating. Mm-hmm. Uh, what will happen to the originals now? Uh, sí, por supuesto. Um, I think clearly they belong to the Iris. And uh, I will be here for the week of the commemoration and the broadcasting of these interviews on Near FM. And then I will arrange to meet someone from your government to hand these original cylinders over for safekeeping. Mm. How did they uh, um, survive so long? I mean, how did you come to possess them? There's a historical story there, you know. See, uh, and it's a very good story. Mm. My great-grandfather's diary said that such terrible punishment caused uproar and a general uprising began in Dublin. So General Maswell was accused of losing Ireland for the British. In this turmoil, Richard Maswell decided to return to England with these precious recordings forgotten by everyone. Please continue, Senora. Uh, the cylinders then remain in his, ha- uh, his house, he has a house in Surrey, in a suitcase with his handwritten diary for more than 30 years. But then in 1940, an ailing uh, Richard Maswell took them with him when he travelled to Oviedo mm-hmm. in uh, Spain uh, to live with his son. So the recording's forgotten by anyone, yes? Go on, please continue. The cylinders and diary remain forgotten in the attic of that house for another 70 years until the house was for sale. Uh, Senora, no. how did you get involved? 
well, I got the house, uh, but we live in Madrid at the time, my husband and I, and we were clearing out the house before the sale and found the suitcase. We didn't realize how important the, these recordings were. So they just look old, mm -hmm. and the diary said they belong to my great-grandfather. Mm. Uh, I just bought them to Madrid, and over the next few years, I will dip into the diary, and eventually Sean and I realized the importance of the recordings. So we decided to come back to Dublin with them, and here we are. Very good, yeah. How can we be sure that these are authentic recordings? from the period. Well, each cylinder is stamped with the date 1910 and they look old. Yeah, but it seems unlikely that this material would lie undisturbed for, what, almost a century? But not impossible. I recall that French diplomatic documents relating to the retrieval of the remains of W.B. Yeats remained in a trunk in southeastern France for almost 70 years. They obviously don't clear out their attics very often on the continent. <laughs> what did the document say about Yeats? They showed that there was no way to identify Yeats, uh, as the poet's bones were mixed, and I quote, pell-mell with other bones in an ossuary. So, the diplomat recommended reconstituting a skeleton from the bones in the ossuary, and sent these in a sealed coffin to Ireland. So who is buried in Yeats's grave in Sligo? <laughs> Probably parts of Yeats and several French people. <laughs> God, I would love to stay on this, but we must return to Senora Maxwell Hogan and her skeletons. We're talking about Pierce and I suppose the importance of the 1916 Rising. Thoughts, anyone? Well, was 1916 necessary at all? Weren't the British about to provide home rule without any of the violence? That's what we're going to find out. And we want our listeners to join us on this historic occasion. You can text us on 087-69-44-500 with comments, questions or observations. We'll try to get to most of them. Those who say that Britain would have agreed to a democratic separation should look at the British response to the 1918 election. Remind us. They annulled the election result, where close to three quarters of the Irish people voted for independence and a united Ireland, partitioned the country and launched all out war, including the unleashing of the blackened hands on the population. A more pertinent question is, was 1916 a crime? Did it start all the violence? That's what we're going to find out. Well... While the Easter Rising may have included some isolated rebel actions that uh, contravened the rules of war, the Rising as such was a crime only in the vapid sense that, like any rebellion, it broke the oppressor's prevailing law of the land. Hmm. Was 1916 needed? Let's find out. Uh, well, it was for Pierce. Uh, the central significance of the Rising was symbolic. It, it was important to him that his gesture was more effective than Emmett's. By Friday, he decided that he had done enough to, and I quote, redeem Dublin from many shames and make our name splendid among the names of cities. Wasn't it a bit self-indulgent to wreck the city and cause such a loss of life just to promote a symbol? He wasn't alone. Over 2,000 others joined him. They felt the need to make a stand for a lost identity. <clears throat> lost identity. That's something we should return to. But some have argued that it was the conscription crisis in 1918 that tipped the balance, not the rising. There was widespread resistance to conscription, but I think 1916 shaped these later events. Well, was 1916 inevitable? 
I feel that, given the ideology of the IRB and the general militarising of Europe in 1914, an attempted rising in Ireland was probably inevitable. But its significance may have been overstated. Mm. Now, we have a text in, Leem in Darndale has this to say. Whatever about 1916, 1918 showed a clear majority in favour of a united Ireland. People supported the rising once they thought about it. <laughs> uh, this is known as post-event yeah. justification. <laughs> Reading history backwards to use the 1918 election to justify 1916. I see. And what happened to Pierce's expectation that Ireland would be able to take part in any treaty after the war? Well, when the proclamation referred to the support of our, of our gallant allies in Europe... An alignment with defeated Germany put paid to any hope of such representation. Oh, uh, Pierce uh, spoke briefly uh, about his schools and Indus, uh, mm. as he was proud of his role in challenging the British educational system, which uh, promoted a sense of Britishness. Why, every morning Irish children chanted, and here it is, I thank the goodness and the grace that on my birth have smiled and made me these Christian days a happy English child. <laughs> Dear Lord. This mindset was also promoted by the media at the time. In 1916, the main newspaper, the Irish Independent, was notoriously pro-establishment. Wasn't this the paper of William Martin Murphy? Uh, Yes. um, He he was a a businessman and politician. He became a legendary hate figure to nationalist Ireland. Wasn't wasn't he mainly responsible for the 1913 lockout? Yes, he worried that the trade unions would destroy his Dublin tram system. He organised Dublin employers against the the trade unions. This led to the Dublin lockout of 1913. His opinion was all over his newspapers, even though he denied this. One glaring example was his viewpoints on the executions, expressed through his Irish independent. That made him even more unpopular. He called for the executions of Macdermott and wounded Connolly at a time when the Irish public began to feel sympathy for their cause. Murphy claimed that the editorial had been written and published without his knowledge, but Dubliners knew who ran the Irish Independent. OK, enough on Murphy. We have a text in from Peter in Sutton. He says that Owen McNeil is still a mystery to him. He was both central to the rising and invisible during it. Who was he? McNeil was central to everything that was evolving at that time. Mm -hmm. He was a co-founder of the Gaelic League to preserve Irish language and culture. In 1913, he established the Irish Volunteers and served as Chief of Staff. But how did he get involved with the army? He wrote a piece for the Gaelic League's newspaper encouraging the formation of a volunteer force similar to that of the Ulster Volunteers. And he was encouraged to form the Irish Volunteers. Was he ever for a violent uprising? McNeil saw little hope of success in open battle against the British Army. He regarded premature rebellion as both immoral and counterproductive. Uh, McNeil was opposed to the idea of an armed rebellion except in resisting any suppression of the Volunteers. But apart from his countermanding order... Did he take any part in the uprising? (laughs) No, though he held a key position at the outbreak of the Easter Rising, he had no role in it or its planning. And as we know, he even went so far as to try to prevent it. So what happened to him after the Rising? (laughs) McNeil was arrested and sentenced to life imprisonment, though he had taken no part in the insurrection. 
His military title did for him. He was lucky not to be shot. McNeil, I understand, didn't agree with Redmond encouraging his Irish volunteers to get involved in the war to save plucky little Belgians and other small nations. Ah, yes. Hmm? Plucky little Belgium that the Irish volunteers went off to save. (laughs) Plucky little Belgium that raped the Congo and slaughtered at least one million inhabitants, (sighs) which Roger Caseman exposed. Please, Hugh... We're exploring Pierce's thoughts. Pierce looked to see how a culture fosters a tendency to conform. Mm. He was deeply critical of the educational system in Ireland. He said of this murder machine, and these are his own words, a soulless machine cannot make men, but it can break men. But Pierce's education system was also propagandist. It's no coincidence that so many young St. Enda students wound up in the GPO. Yes, and, and Pierce acknowledged this when he observed, uh, and these, uh, this is a quotation again, to the old Irish, the teacher was Acha, or fosterer. He wrote that the English educational system in Ireland has deliberately succeeded in making slaves of us. It has succeeded so well that we no longer realise that we are slaves. Some of us even think... Our chains are ornamental. And and those are Pierce's own words. Right. Okay. Well, we're near the end of our first programme in the Lost Easter Voices series. Thank you all. And we may have heard the actual voice of Pierce. Next, we'll hear from Thomas McDonough. Now, I'd like you all to tune in tomorrow, same time, or check out our podcasts. Till then, listeners, slán. You've just listened to a special programme dedicated to the life and death of Podrick Pierce. We would like to thank Signora Maxwell Hogan for allowing us to digitally enhance the original Edison recordings from the period. We'd also like to thank our own Charlotte Tannen for hosting the panel discussions. And we'd like to thank her studio guests Hugh Coy, Roger Brazenby and Wilmot Hines. Tomorrow at the same time we'll broadcast the voice of Thomas McDonough. Until then, Salon. This programme was funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with the television licence fee.